This is WMPG. I'm Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about courage. The courage to talk about the subjects that are the hardest to bring up, but that we think about the most. This month's series is on the untold stories of dementia, how we live with it in our loved ones, and how we live with the fear of getting it ourselves. This month, for the first time, we're inviting you to contact us if you have a similar story that you would like to share. We are calling this new section of the show Echoing Stories, and we'll be playing them toward the end of this series. So if you have an untold story about dementia, please email me at drannne at safespaceradio.com. That's D-R-A-N-N-E, Dr. Anne at safespaceradio.com. Today, I'm going to be speaking with my own mother, Claire Hallward, about her experience with her husband and my father's early onset dementia. Claire Hallward is originally from England, but she's lived in Montreal for over half a century. She was married to John Hallward for 55 years before he died two years ago. She has six children and will soon have 12 grandchildren. Claire has served on the boards of numerous charitable organizations, including Chances, a residence for single mothers as they finish their education, and the Thomas More Institute, which offers adult education classes and where she has taught and served on the board for many years. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Mom. Thank you. So we're going to talk about Dad, and I want to start by asking you to, to describe just a little bit about who he was before he became ill. Well, I was just looking at a letter from somebody I received uh, who sent it to me, who works in the provost's office at McGill University, talking about him and his brother as two remarkable brothers who worked tirelessly to improve our world. And I think John was always interested in trying to make things better, He had been president of the Canadian Club. He pulled together Centraide, which is the equivalent of the United Way in Canada, getting all the agencies to cooperate. And he was the first English-speaking president of that because he was the only Anglo at that time who could lead a meeting in French. He had an amazing sense of humor. People loved him leading meetings because he never let them drag on too long. <laughs> and a lot of people knew him. Yeah. You know, as I hear you, I hear, I hear how proud you are of him. Oh, very. That's wonderful. So tell me a little bit about the beginning of his illness. How did you start to, to notice that something was a bit off? Well, what frustrated him so badly he used to get very upset about was that people would greet him on the street and he could not remember their name. He had no clue who they were and he found this terribly frustrating. And he, they would say, hello, John, and he would say, hello, and felt awful about it. Um, that was the first big thing. The other, I think, that we all noticed is that when the kids were all together for dinner over the summer, he would get up and leave the table and go and wash the dishes and not listen to the conversation. And I couldn't understand why he didn't seem interested. And I think it was just because he couldn't cope with it. He didn't know what to say, so he would leave. 
Yeah, so those were very early signs, and they weren't ones. I mean, at that point, I'm guessing you weren't thinking dementia. It was more. No, like, I wasn't that worried. I was concerned that he was so upset. Yes. And when did you start really thinking, oh, something is actually wrong? Well, I think probably, as you've heard this story many times, one of his favorite quotes was, grow old with me, the best is yet to be. And that vision sort of withered and died really at your wedding because he used to be so good at toasting a bride. (laughs) And you had asked him to do the toast to the bride. And he was up there making no sense at all. And first I thought he was drunk, and then I thought, well, I've never seen him drunk. He can't be drunk. He just doesn't actually know what he's doing. And I sat there sort of with a face of shock and pain, and my friend sitting next to me said, don't worry, Claire, a lot is forgiven the father of the bride. And I thought, "Mm, that's not that, though. Yes. And I knew something was really wrong. And that was when you took him to the doctor and eventually led to his getting diagnosed. and the doctor gave him his first MRI then. So I wanted to tell you a little story of mine and see how it jives with your experience, which was that before he was diagnosed with dementia, I remember feeling so frustrated and annoyed with him because he would repeat himself on and on and he would complain about his memory. And he, he was so young that none of us were thinking that he had dementia. So we just found this annoying and we were impatient with him. And then once he actually got the diagnosis, there was this real realization that he actually couldn't help himself. He wasn't in control of it. It wasn't that he was just trying to be difficult. And I think... In a strange way, his diagnosis was a relief because I could be, then suddenly I could feel compassion instead of annoyance. And I'm curious, did you have that experience? Yes, I remember that. I remember feeling very guilty that we'd been so irritated with him, thinking he was, as you say, just being difficult. And to realize that he was actually ill and that we hadn't, or I hadn't, grasped this, um... I just felt very sorry. Yes, I did too. So I want to shift now to some of the challenges of caring for someone with dementia and to ask you to tell me maybe a few stories about what were some of the really difficult things for you in caring for him as he became progressively ill? Well, I used to get terribly frustrated because he would not take a shower when I would suggest it was time that he'd take a shower, and he would not, absolutely not. And I was getting myself into great tangles of upset about this. And then my uh, friend introduced me to a woman who became his star caregiver. And she came, and she said, leave it to me, Mrs. Hallwood. And she ran the water to the right temperature, put out towels, his clothes, and said, Mr. Hallwood, time for a shower. And he went. And I was so astounded. And I realized how much better a wife I could be if I didn't have to nag him all the time. That was a big turning point. And I think the other upsetting time for me 
was I had gone for a walk with him, and it was a, just a short walk down a hill, and then there was a big intersection. And I was, you know, got my arm linked through his, and he said, I'm going to cross. And I said, well, the light's just changed, John. We have to wait a minute. And he flung me off with incredible strength and ran into the traffic. And I stood there weeping with fury and fear, absolutely sure he was going to be smushed in front of my eyes. But somehow he made it. He got across. There was a lot of honking and cars weaving around him. I mean, it was terrifying. But he got across and sort of, see? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm never, ever again going to go for a walk with him. I'm not strong enough. And he never, ever did that with any of his caregivers. So was that was that frustrating or, or painful for you? Terrifying. Mom? Well, yes. I mean, the experience itself sounds really, really frightening. But also that he would in some ways be better behaved with, with the caregivers than he was with you, it seems. Well, he quite clearly did not want me in the role of caregiver for whatever reason. Ah. He did not. I had all my meals with him. But I did not, and I would have been very bad at it anyway. So uh, we luckily, blessedly, able to afford, eventually, round-the-clock help, who looked after him so beautifully. I feel so blessed in the people we had to help. You know, it's interesting, Mom, hearing you talk about that, that that he didn't want you to be in that role well, that's what I felt. I don't know whether I'm right or not. Well, it's interesting because I wonder both with the shower and with you trying to get him not to run across the street if there was a way that he felt controlled. Once he went to the gym and he was resisting the woman at the gym who was trying to get him to do something, and she said to him, I'm trying to assist you. You are resisting me. What is it you don't like? And he said being controlled. So that was pretty clear. <laughs> yes. Yeah, bless him. It's powerful, isn't it, that even though he was quite ill then, he could be so honest and real about the real thing that was going on. Yeah. He was quite aware of that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, to you, you mentioning him at the gym reminds me, uh, you know, a common experience for those with dementia is wandering. And I know this could be a real challenge with Dad. In some ways, his dashing across the street was like that, his sort of impulsive dashing yes. off. I wondered if you might tell the story of what happened when he went to the uh, gym and wandered. <laughs> yes, his caregiver took him to a gym, another gym, where they had a very good exercise session. Then she realized she couldn't go back into the men's locker with him. So she got a young man there to say, go in. He won't remember his locker number, and please keep an eye on him. Well, a few minutes later, the young man came back out and said, he disappeared. He said, I turned around to open his locker. I turned back, and he'd gone. So they hunted the place because there was a pool there. There was, you know, they were really worried. And only later, quite why, I don't know, but later, they realized there was a door from the locker room onto the street. 
uh, that you could open from the inside, but you could not open from the outside. So John was always curious about doors and going through doors. And he'd gone out. He was in his boxer shorts and a T-shirt. It was below freezing. It was February in Montreal. And they went out, and the woman looking after him said, I better get back to the apartment because the police have that number. You know, he had a belt saying if, if he was lost to call this number. So she went back there. I was out doing the grocery shopping, so knew none of this. She went back to the flat, and the phone rang from the emergency of the hospital, which was right across the street. And they said, we have Mr. Hallward here. We're trying to warm him up. Can you please bring some clothes? <laughs> yes. Oh, so, oh. So I was so relieved that he was okay, that he was there, that they somebody he, found him. Was he in bare feet, Mom? Do you know? He can't have been in bare feet. No, he would have had gym shoes on. I see. But he had apparently stopped on the way home. He didn't get lost. He was on his way home. He'd stopped in at an art gallery, which he was quite involved with. And it just so happened that there was an exhibition going on and a lot of people there. <laughs> and the man who was running the gallery said, John, what are you doing? You must be freezing. I'll call a taxi for you. And then he turned around because somebody asked him something and turned back. John was gone and walked in this freezing weather. In his so, underwear. <laughs> yes. She took his clothes to help her and found him on a bed covered with blankets being fussed over by nurses, having a lovely time. Yeah. So got him back home. I came back with all the groceries and I was told this story. And I said to him, John, you must have been so cold. And he said, cold? He'd already completely forgotten the whole story. Yeah. Obviously, there were so many challenges like this. Uh, but you turned to support, partly to the Alzheimer's Group, which is a, an organization in Montreal that supports people with Alzheimer's and their families. Yes. And I know that he, he was in a support group for some time for people with dementia, as were you for the caregiver. And I wonder if you might tell me about how, did, was that group helpful to you? And if so, how? Very helpful. There was a spousal support group of husbands and wives. And we could all just talk about our experiences and find, well, for one thing, that you weren't the only person in the world with this problem. And the thing that the woman who ran it, who was very skillful, kept stressing, she said, get help. We're always concerned about the caregiver, that they not wear themselves out and get sick, because that doesn't help anybody. And especially some of the men, or some of the women too, no, no, I don't need help, I can handle this. It's better if I do it, you know. But she stressed that. But she told me one wonderful thing, because when we finally ended up with 24-hour care for John, because he get his time all mixed up at night, and I had to move into another apartment in the same building, thank God. 
Um, and I felt very guilty about this. I thought loving, devoted wives don't do this. And she said to me, the woman who ran the Alzheimer group support group, she said, Mrs. Holwood, your decision to live your own life and be happy is in no way a diminishment of your life with John, but a tribute to that life. And I was so, so dumbfounded by that, because it was true he had always supported me in every way. He wanted me to be doing what I felt I should be doing at all times. He was incredible that way. Mm. What I remember about that is that you moving, it turned out, into the apartment just above him was partly because he was keeping you up all night and that you actually fell twice because you were so exhausted. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's when my dear beloved children all said, Mom, this cannot go on. You cannot be up all night and, and up all, all day. day as well. Yes. So Dad's dementia in some ways was unusual. He did not have Alzheimer's. He had what's called frontotemporal dementia, which yes. starts younger. And in his case, anyway, he lived with it for 16 years, which is a very long time. And I'm curious... How, what was the effect of that on you, Mom, to live with this for such a long time? Well, I felt in a very odd sort of situation. I didn't feel like I was really a wife. I obviously wasn't a widow. So what was I? I was, um, it was a strange sort of feeling. My friends really didn't know what to say or do or how to help with John. People would come and visit John and stay, and he didn't know who they were, and they didn't know what to say to him, and it was just sort of an awkward feeling. And so they left, and they usually didn't come back. But they were wonderful in their help for me in taking me out to dinner. They kept in touch with me um, in a wonderful way. I was so grateful to them. I mean, I almost felt guilty at how much help I had and thought, kept thinking of all the people who weren't able to afford help like I had and worrying about them. So I've always been happy to help, you know, anybody who has a question they want to talk about. Yeah. And the, and the, with your friends, you know, if you were to instruct a friend of someone who was a caregiver, what is helpful, in fact, from a friend? Well, they need somebody who they can trust to leave their beloved spouse with so they get a break. Because um, to live on that sort of degree of tension of watching every minute, um, you can only keep that up for so long. Yes. I want to ask you, too, about, about the process of grieving, because in a way you were losing him steadily even before the diagnosis, so it, it lasted for such a long, steady process of loss, and I wondered if you could describe what that was like for you, what, what you noticed about how you grieved him. I think I, I mean, I grieved losing a companion, losing my best friend, in the sense that we talked everything over and 
and there was like had nobody like him to talk to. I missed that. So that was sort of my grieving in a way. I felt I lost him years. I don't really know when exactly. So when he actually died, in some ways it was a relief. It was a very peaceful death. Um, So I felt glad for him because it was not a life that was that was rewarding for him. I think what I noticed about grieving is the same as you. You know, I, I felt like I was losing him for so long. It was this very protracted, almost endless experience of grief, it felt like. But that when he, when he actually died, yes, mostly what I felt was relief for him and for myself. But I also felt that his death kind of gave him back to me in a strange way, that, that all of a sudden I could remember how wonderful he'd been before he was ill. And I could hold on to that as the person, as opposed to being so consumed by all the worry and caregiving decisions and so on while he was ill. So there was a strange way that actually, when he actually died, I felt as if I got him back in a strange way, Hmm. which which I was so grateful for. Yes, that's wonderful. Or at least I began to feel lucky, lucky to have had him as my father when I felt so unlucky for so many years when he was ill. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mom, I want to ask you now about, I know in the last four weeks of his life, he did have to go to a nursing home, and it, which is a decision that so many people dread. And I wonder if you could talk about how you knew it was time and, and what that was like. I knew it was time because even though I had hoped that he could be at home right to the end, um, he was losing the ability to use any of his muscles. And when it got to the point that he couldn't even help the caregiver sort of move him out of the chair, he became a dead weight. And then he was too heavy for one person. So I knew that he would have to go to a nursing home. And we had done a, a survey, and we'd both cho- all chosen the one we liked the best. And luckily, we didn't have too long, only three months to wait before she called, and there was a bed, and we could take him. But it was, to me, an agonizing moment to We explained it to him. We tried to tell him why and where he was going and that I would come every day. We would be there. And um, But uh, I knew he didn't understand what I was saying. And we took him in his wheelchair. And at a certain point, after I sort of pointed out where his pajamas were and where things were and so on, I had to leave. And that was one of the hardest things I think I ever did, was leaving him sitting in his wheelchair looking bewildered beyond belief. Why am I here? What is this? Where is this? And I had to walk away. And I thought, I can't do this. What am I doing to him? Even though I knew it was the right thing to do. That was really hard. 
That was bad. But I wanted to tell one story of a time earlier, very quickly. One of the doctors at the memory clinic said to me after she'd been talking to John, this man has spent his life helping other people. You must find ways to ask him to help you and really ask him and thank him. That will help him. So, you know, I spent time thinking now, yes, he could mail this letter for me. Yes, he could go and collect something here that I'd forgotten. Yes, he could go and... And so then, every, and then grocery shopping, which he took over from me to my great joy. With the caregiver, uh, with it must helper. be said. Yes. And um, so I would thank him profusely every time for keeping the household going and so on and so forth. I mean, I remember this so well, and it, it did. It did become a focus. It became a way that he could feel he was making a contribution. Yeah, we hoped anyway. Oh, I, I think so. It, it seemed yeah. to have been such a, a great thing for him and for, for all of us. Yes. No, it was so helpful. So I want to ask now about, about his actual dying. And, um, you know, we as a family had taken really, I think, almost a whole year to reach the decision that should he get pneumonia, we would not treat him with antibiotics. We would decide that that was sort of his his chance to die a peaceful death. How did that decision feel to you to withhold antibiotics? How did that sit with you before it actually became real? Well, when we were making that decision and you had drawn up a very, very detailed document which you checked with the head of ethics at the Mass General and all kinds of people, um, I asked a friend of mine, because it worried, I found it hard. I said to my friend, am I going to feel that I'm murdering him? You know, by, with, as it were, withholding treatment. And he said, oh, no, no. He said, the people who insist on keeping somebody alive when they are ready to die, they're more murderous, in his opinion. So there's a man who worked in palliative care. So that relieved me very much. Then when it came to the moment he was in the nursing home, they called me at 10.30 or 11 at night. I was already asleep and said he had a very high temperature and this is when they would normally send him to the hospital. So I said, well, you know, we did make up this document and all my children signed it. And she said, yes, I know. But I have to ask you, do you still feel that way? And I had to say, yes, we all do. We're quite united on this, which was I found really hard because I thought, oh, God, I'm making the decision all over again. But there was no question in my mind. Mom, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. It, I, I debated at great length whether it would be a good idea to interview my own mother on the radio. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm so glad to have done this. Thank you so much for being willing to tell your well, stories. Well, thank you, Anne. It's wonderful. If you are a caregiver for someone you love with dementia, I do want to encourage you, as did my mother, to reach out to a local agency for a support group. Here in Maine, we have the Southern Maine Agency on Aging. We also have the local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and that exists um, 
in cities throughout the country. This is WMPG. I've been talking to Claire Hallward about what it was like for her to be married to a man who had lived with dementia for 16 years, what the challenges and turning points were, and what helped her cope with it the most. If you have a story about a loved one with dementia that you would like to tell in the hopes of helping others, please email me at dranne at safespaceradio.com, and Dr. Anne is spelled D-R-A-N-N-E. If you only got to hear part of the show and would like to listen to it in in its entirety, please go to our website, safespaceradio.com. You can listen to it. You can send the link to a friend. You can also subscribe there to get a weekly link to that week's show. You can also download us onto your phone from iTunes, and you can listen to us through Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Jim Russell for consulting with us. Coming up next is Speak Freely.